Congressman Adam Schiff. Very excited to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. You don't usually sit in chairs like this in D.C. I know. I, this is very hip and trendy, <laughs> a grass chair. California style. It's the only grass we'll have. Um, I, I want to, there's a, an enormous range of topics we can cover, but I really think we're all eager to hear from you about the Russia investigation. So I'm just going to start there. As chair of the House Committee on Intelligence, you plan to reopen the Russia investigation that Devin Nunes shut down and declared that there was no collusion. Um, can you first explain to us what is your committee's charge and in what way is that different from what special counsel Bob Mueller is doing? Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for uh, this forum, this opportunity to, to talk to everyone. Uh, and that's a, a great question to start out with because I think there's often a lack of understanding about just what is Congress's role, what's Mueller's role, does Congress really need to look into this, I mean, why can't Mueller do it all? What Bob Mueller is tasked with doing is determining what U.S. laws have been violated and who should go to jail. Uh, he is essentially a contract prosecutor for the Justice Department, uh, and he was brought into that role because it was felt that there was a conflict of interest uh, in the Justice Department, or there would at least be questions about whether it could be done objectively if it was done within the department. Uh, so they brought him on a special counsel. This was in the wake of the Comey firing. Our role in Congress is very different. Our role is to determine what the facts are, uh, what took place uh, in terms of the Russian intervention in our election, uh, what role the Trump campaign may have played in that, whether there was any kind of conspiracy or collusion between the two, uh, whether there are any other intelligence or counterintelligence or national security risks to the country owing to uh, the president or his campaign team's relationship with a foreign adversary, uh, and to tell the country about it and what we need to do to protect the country going forward. Uh, now, this latter part is very important because Bob Mueller may not be able to speak to the country outside of an indictment. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we know that he's going to write a report for the Justice Department, but the regulations only require that the Justice Department inform Congress if the Justice Department makes a decision to um, refuse to permit Bob Mueller to, for example, indict someone. So that has to be notified to us. But apart from that, it is really within the discretion of the Attorney General how much is shared with the Congress or the country. Uh, and we got a sense of just how important it is for us to do our own fact-finding uh, when we heard the nominee for Attorney General Bill Barr testify before the Senate that he was making no commitment to either follow the advice of the ethics lawyers of the Justice Department uh, if they recommend he recuse himself, as they're likely to do, um, or that he should make the report available to Congress or the public. Uh, and so we're going to fight like heck to make sure that report isn't buried, that in fact is made public, but we have our own independent fact-finding to do. Now, it's reported that on that front, you are doubling the size of your staff. Uh, you're hiring trained investigators who are going to look into targeted areas. Would you explain for us what are those targeted areas? If you would sort of break down the investigation into its pieces as you see it. Well, th this is one of the other reasons why it's important for us to do our own work and not be completely reliant on Bob Mueller, and, and that is we don't yet know the scope of Mueller's investigation. Uh, now, we know ver don't in very... sort of? Well, it, we know in general terms what he's been charged with, what he's been permitted to investigate. 
But we don't know what limits have been placed on that because they're not a matter of public record. Um, now, the person who would have placed those limits on the special counsel is Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general. And the reason that he has that job is that the attorney general at the time, Jeff Sessions, had been recused from the Russia investigation uh, because he did follow the advice of ethics lawyers. Um, but Matt Whitaker, who is now the acting attorney general, has refused to follow the advice of ethics lawyers. So he has now stepped into the shoes, ostensibly, of Rod Rosenstein. And one thing we do know is the president has tried to put a limit on what Bob Mueller can investigate. Uh, and in particular, the president has tried to prevent the Justice Department or Bob Mueller from looking into his business and his finances as it pertains to Russia. Now, that's a problem. Um, and we got to see just uh, the, the size of that problem when we learned recently that Michael Cohen's testimony before Congress wasn't fully truthful, and one of the most important areas where it wasn't was in his testimony about the Trump Tower deal in Moscow. Um, this, and this to me, is, is just an astounding, incontested fact at this point, and that is that at a time when Donald Trump was running for president, um, at a time when he became the presumptive nominee of one of the two major political parties and was telling the country, I have no dealings in Russia, no business there, no nothing, that privately he was seeking to negotiate what would have been probably the most lucrative deal of his life, um, and that is the construction of a massive tower in Moscow, something the special counsel through his pleadings uh, has said they expected would make the Trump organization hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, Trump is basically not a developer, he's a licensor, he licenses his name. Mm -hmm. None of those deals, licensing deals, make you hundreds of millions. So this was, this was a big, lucrative deal, and at the same time he was seeking the Kremlin's help to make that happen, he was publicly advocating for doing away with sanctions on Russia, something that would make billions for Putin and Russia. And if we merely accept the president's word, we would have never known about any of that and the compromise that that uh, represents. What is the potential crime there? Well, I mean, there, there are two issues. One is what criminal activity may have gone on, and the other is, is the president acting in a way that is in furtherance of his financial interests, but antagonistic to the country's national security interests? Uh, and that may or may not be a crime but it is a danger to the republic. Um, if the Russians hold leverage over the President of the United States, uh, and they have, I mean, they had the leverage of knowing that Donald Trump was misleading the country about his business dealings with Russia. They were on the other end of that transaction, and that gives them the leverage of being able to disclose at any time of their choosing that the President of the United States is not telling the truth. Uh, and so, if you look at the issue that we are looking into of whether the Russians have been laundering money through the Trump organization, um, if that's true, and it's, a, it's an if, we don't know, that is further leverage the Russians could have because they would be on the other end of that as well, and that is something they could expose if they don't like what the president is doing. And, May um, I go back to something you said a moment ago? Just you, you said that there's a possibility that the president could be potentially so compromised that he's dealing in Russia's interests, not in the U.S. interests and it's possible that is not a crime. Is our system set up to deal with the possibility that the man at the very top is 
acting, has, is acting against American interests? Well, you know, certainly the system, as the framers established it, is capable of dealing with that. And there are clauses very much in, you know, in the Constitution, the Emoluments Clause, that was designed to deal with exactly the situation where a president is acting in the interest of a foreign power, not in the national interest. The question is, what's the remedy for violating that? And, you know, one remedy is indictment, but the Justice Department has taken the position, which I think is flawed that you can't indict a sitting president right. that there's no prohibition on indicting a sitting president in the congress in the constitution but if you take that position then the only other remedy is impeachment and the bar for impeachment is obviously very high uh, it w is required in, in the circumstances of the present congress and its composition to have a sizable amount of gop support and at this point the republican members of the house and senate um, are not even willing to speak publicly and criticize the president because they fear a backlash from his base. Um, but, you know, that is the remedy that the Constitution sets out. Okay, let's get back to impeachment. I have so many questions that create that. You have to get through first. So in the Stone indictment, it says a senior Trump campaign official was directed to contact Roger Stone and about any additional WikiLeaks releases. Now, What's key here is a senior Trump campaign official was directed to contact Stone. It's assumed that the person doing the directing would be potentially the president. So, A, did that surprise you to read that? You know, honestly, I'm not sure anything surprises me anymore. Um, but uh, I think you're right. There are, there are not that many pe people in a position to be directing senior members of the campaign. Uh, and direction is a word that Mueller has used before, most notably when Mueller in a previous, in, or actually the Southern District of New York in another indictment said, individual one, who we know is Donald Trump, directed Michael Cohen in this campaign finance fraud scheme. Right. So it may very well be the president. That's one thing we're gonna find out. Um, this is one of the investigative threads that we have been pursuing, and that is at the same time that candidate Trump was publicly urging the Russians to hack Hillary Clinton's emails, and at the same time the Russians were making approaches to the campaign through George Papadopoulos and through Don Jr. and offering dirt on Hillary Clinton and letting the campaign know we, we actually have stolen Clinton emails, um, was the president also, through Stone or others, trying to find out from the publishing arm of the Russians, WikiLeaks or Guccifer 2 or DC Leaks, just what documents they had, what their timing was, was there coordination or collusion? Uh, that is certainly one of the investigative threads. And if there was, is that conspiracy, is that a crime? Well, if there was, the, the crime would be conspiracy. And it would be a charge we have seen in the Mueller investigation before, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Uh, now, to prove a conspiracy, you have to prove agreement, you have to prove an overact in furtherance of that agreement. Uh, and. We have seen recently, and, and who knows how much to read into Rudy Giuliani, because <laughs> you have to say Rudy in the morning, Rudy in the afternoon, or Rudy in the evening. <laughs> um, but uh, he has been continually moving the goalpost uh, from there were no meetings to, okay, there were meetings, but they were innocent, to, okay, they weren't innocent, but it, it's not collusion. Okay, collusion may be collusion, but collusion is not a crime. Okay, maybe collusion is a crime, but I never said there wasn't collusion with the campaign, <laughs> only said there was collusion with the president. I mean, it will be up to Mueller from the point of view of a criminal prosecution. If he can't seek an indictment, but there is evidence of criminality on the president's part, uh, to report it 
to the Justice Department. Uh, and I do think the Justice Department will have a decision to make at some point, if not now, when the President leaves office. The Southern District of New York... Um, you mean whether to prosecute him out, out, out of office? Yes. Right. Um, I mean, the Southern District of New York alleged that individual number one directed and coordinated a campaign fraud scheme involving Michael Cohen and the National Enquirer. Um, they recommended Michael Cohen go to jail, in part for his participation in that scheme. What is the argument to be made that the person who directed the scheme and coordinated the scheme um, should be held harmless if other people go to jail? Let's talk about Michael Cohen. He was supposed to testify openly before your committee, actually this upcoming week, um, and canceled that, citing physical intimidation and threats that he perceived from Rudy Giuliani and the president. I will also say at, the at that same time, he had shoulder surgery and appeared on camera with what looked like a black eye. So I'm curious, is there any evidence, have you seen ev any evidence or reason to believe that he is the target of threats, including physical threats? And do you believe the president is involved in witness tampering? Well, uh, you know, he, uh, and, and I know it's confusing because there are multiple committees involved, uh, he has uh, proposed to testify in open session before the Oversight Committee. Okay. Um, we are going to be bringing him in, in closed, session closed session to talk about the Russia stuff. Uh, he's testifying about other matters before the Oversight Committee. Uh, and we are, we're doing this in a case-by-case, witness-by-witness basis in terms of open or closed, depending on the needs of our investigation, the concerns that the special counsel might have, um, the desire not to tip off other witnesses or have them conform their stories. Uh, but also, we are going to do as much as we can in open session because we want the public to, to have visibility into this. But yes, um, I think it's unquestionably the case that the President and Giuliani are trying to intimidate Michael Cohen. Uh, they are essentially threatening to have his family members investigated, his father-in-law or maybe his wife. Uh, and you know, having been the subject of the president's attacks on Twitter, I can tell you that it generates a lot in the Twitter sphere uh, when that happens. Uh, and people do threaten you. And, and I've received death threats. I have no doubt that he has. Uh, and, and I completely understand the concerns that he has and his family have uh, over uh, the president's comments. It's not simply an ordinary citizen opining when the President of the United States is saying your family should be investigated. And, you know, and I want to also um, point out that you know, Bill Barr's testimony was not encouraging uh, and his memo was not encouraging on the subject of whether it is okay for a President to be suggesting to the Justice Department who should be prosecuted. Uh, and, I, and I find it um, a, a, an alarming illustration of how the nation's moral standards are being dumbed down, that we have an acting attorney general and an attorney general nominee who have both said they will not commit themselves to following the advice of ethics lawyers. Um, is it too much to ask in this country that we have a top law enforcement officer, an attorney general, committed to following the advice of ethics lawyers. Um, but this is, this is uh, evidently where we are. So you, you've said basically the president 
has threatened essentially to have some of the Cohen's family investigated, but has not, to your knowledge, ordered the Department of Justice to do that yet? Well, unless he does it on Twitter, we don't really know. <laughs> um, okay. And But look, I don't think anybody would have put it past this president to, okay. to be suggesting to Matt Whitaker, someone he chose because he auditioned for the part by talking about how he could privately scuttle the Mueller investigation. No one would put it past this president to be saying, why aren't you investigating so-and-so? After all, he's called for investigation of Hillary Clinton and right. John Brennan, and the list goes on and on. Uh, one more beat on Michael Cohen. He is testifying before closed doors. The public does have a right to hear from him. I'm sure you would agree with that. Do you plan to release the transcripts of what he says? We do, we do. And you know, we're gonna start making public the transcripts of witnesses that have already come before us and you know we'll sequence it so that it doesn't interfere with our investigation and we want to make sure we don't step on the toes of the special counsel but we do want this to be public rudy giuliani i mean so much to say there uh he said last week i have been through all the tapes that raised a lot of eyebrows because presumably he wouldn't have access to michael cohen's tapes uh do you have reason to believe that the president has tapes and if so is that something that would interest the committee well, I, there have been a number of conversations about tapes, and there, there certainly are some tapes, and I think we've heard copies of them aired vis-a-vis -vis the campaign finance scheme. Uh, I think you're referring to a different tape, sir. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't talking about those tapes. Um, but, you know, there, there also, you know, um, was a threat the president made early on referencing James Comey that he had tapes. And... At the time that he did that, this was fairly early on in our investigation, um, Mike Conaway, one of my Republican colleagues on the Intelligence Committee, and I wrote a bipartisan letter to the administration of the White House saying, if you have tapes or memoranda reflecting conversations between the President and James Comey, we want you to produce them. And the response we got back initially from the White House was, um, you will find our answer on Twitter, basically. The president has tweeted that he doesn't have tapes. Oh. And we wrote back to the White House saying his tweet is not an answer. Um, we've asked you about tapes as well as memoranda or other documents that memorialize conversations between the president uh, and Comey. And they basically told us to pound sand. And so we had threatened that if they did that, that we would subpoena those records. Um, but when the Republicans were actually put in the position of having to insist on getting information, they were unwilling. Um, we'll be in the position now to insist uh, on getting answers, and we certainly are going to do our best to find out the truth. So this is a technical question. Can you subpoena tapes that you don't know whether they exist? If they exist, we subpoena them? Is that well, your plan? Um, we can subpoena any tapes records, memoranda, uh, reflecting conversations. Um, they can fight it, and my guess is they're gonna stonewall everything we try to do. Um, but I think when you look at how that litigation turned out during Watergate, it didn't go so well for the right. president. Uh, nonetheless, on a lot of these issues, and you know, one that's very much in the same category is, can we get the interpreter's notes? Can we get the interpreter's testimony, uh, these secret meetings the president was having with Vladimir Putin? Do you plan to subpoena that? Um, we are in discussions with the House General Counsel about what is the strongest basis for our request, how do we fashion our request, uh, and we are going to do everything possible to get an answer. Um, we have no idea what happens in these conversations. 
Uh, you know, one thing I would like to know is the president was misleading the country during the campaign about his business dealings with Russia. Is he still talking to Vladimir Putin about the Moscow Trump Tower deal? Is he trying to make money out of Russia while he's the president of the United States? Uh, I'd like to know if that's something he's discussing. That's something he doesn't want in the interpreter's notes. Now, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Maybe, maybe it has to do with, with other things, which um, are, are troubling from a completely different point of view. And I'll give you just one or two illustrations. Last year, the president said something that really stood out to people because it was so odd and out of the blue that the very aggressive people of Montenegro um, might get us into a third world war, basically. Now, where did that come from? Uh, I wouldn't have thought that this president would even know Montenegro was a country, um, <laughs> except for the fact that he pushed the Montenegrin president out of the way in what has to be the worst illustration of the ugly American that you could imagine. But similarly, and more recently, the president uh, suggested that the Russians, the Soviets, invaded Afghanistan to fight terror. Right. No one on his National Security Council is telling him these things. Um, none of the secretaries are telling him these things. Where is he getting this? How would Putin communicate with him to tell him what to tweet? Well, <laughs> I mean, this is the other thing, which is there's what do they talk about in these meetings that he doesn't want anyone to know about. But then there is, are they having conversations by phone? Because they stopped doing readouts of calls with foreign right. leaders. Uh, so we have no idea how much communication they have or what form it takes. But the other thing is the, that the Russians are very good at is they have people in this country, some who work for them, some who are just financially entangled with them, uh, and some who are useful idiots. Uh, and they use these intermediaries to influence foreign powers. So it may not be Vladimir whispering himself directly into Trump's ear. It may be an intermediary uh, that they've uh, identified as a person of influence. So they go to that person of influence, they make their case with that person knowing that person is going to be talking to the president. Speaking of people of influence with access to the president, Vice President Pence, uh, you had expressed interest previously in hearing from him on the committee. Um, there's reason to believe he had knowledge of some of General Flynn's dealings, as well as the process by which Comey was fired. Um, there is precedent for calling a vice president to testify. Is that something your committee will do? Uh, it's actually something that I, I myself haven't raised. Others may have raised it. Uh, I think you know, bringing a vice president or a president before Congress is a pretty big deal that uh, a lot of consideration would ha have to go into before even undertaking such a step. Uh, I think, frankly, there are a great many witnesses that we need to bring before the Congress uh, before we would even contemplate such a thing. Um, but I, I will say this about Mike Pence, who I came to Congress with. We co-founded a caucus on freedom of the press about 15 years ago. Um, imagine that your life um, and your primary responsibility was gazing adoringly at Donald Trump every day and what that would do for you. So we should all have <laughs> some sympathy for, for Mike Pence. <laughs> <laughs> so you just don't need to hear from him. Okay, Devin Nunes. He, is, he was chair of the committee until the Democrats took control of the House. Um, in that time, not only did he end the investigation with the finding that there was no collusion, he was involved in what can nicely be described as a comical, a comedy of errors in which he tried to make a midnight run to the White House to secret them information uh, that got completely exposed. 
It was so unprecedented what he did. I wonder if you would do something unprecedented and call him to testify before your own, his own committee. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any precedent for calling a colleague, uh, requiring them to testify before a committee. There are many occasions where we actually do testify before other committees uh, on a bill that we're introducing or uh, an issue that we become expert in. Uh, honestly, that's not something that I would contemplate doing. Um, there is an ethics process in the House if there are concerns that people have acted unethically. There, there have been complaints uh, that were considered by the Ethics Committee. Um, but that, that's not somewhere I want to go. Uh, you know, the, the one, the, you know, I will say this about the Intel Committee over the last couple of years. Um, what, what he did, what others have done in terms of acting like surrogates for the Trump legal defense team, uh, I think is unconscionable. Um, at the same time, there is a whole um, area of important work of our committee that is non-Russia related. Uh, that is our bread and butter, that is our day job, that would in a normal uh, administration be the length and breadth of what we do, and that's overseeing these massive intelligence agencies, making sure they're getting the information to protect the country, making sure that they're communicating with each other, making sure they're not violating the Constitution or our privacy. All of that work has gone on in a nonpartisan way. Uh, it needs to continue going on, and so, you know, the challenge for me and what I'm going to try to do is make sure that work goes on, um, get the Russia investigation back on track, uh, and, you know, if they're, they're interested or willing or serious to be a responsible partner, we'll welcome them. If they're not, then we will go forward without them. Can you, are the Republicans primed to work with you faithfully um, and cooperatively in the next phase of this investigation? And if not, what's the worst they can do to block the investigation? Well, you know, one of the things that they may have been doing to try to block us is not appointing their members to the committee. Which they've um, now done. Which they finally did. Uh, and they took weeks to do it, and they only appointed one new member. So apparently it took weeks to identify one new member. But in any event, um, it had the effect of already kind of impeding our work because we couldn't issue subpoenas, we couldn't uh, release transcripts to the special counsel so they could consider them for any perjury prosecutions or other purposes. Um, so... I don't know what their plans and intentions are. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, has said the Republicans are not going to participate in the Russia investigation. I, I would be astonished if that was true, uh, but that's what their leader has said. So um, we'll have to see. If they're willing and serious, they're welcome. If they're not, we're not going to let them obstruct us. Okay. Donald Trump Jr., it's widely expected that he will be indicted next. Are you concerned about the fallout from the president if this happens? It's getting closer and closer to his family. And is there any recourse if he preemptively pardons Don Jr.? Well, you know, I should say I have no idea who will be indicted next or even if there will be further indictments. Uh, so I understand. Um, not asking you to comment on that. I'm, I'm not a particular fan of Don Jr., but uh, I, I do... I do uh, feel I should say I have no idea who, what Understood. the special counsel's intentions are. Um, I am deeply concerned about the president abusing the pardon power. I think he's already abused the pardon power. Uh, he's done it literally in the case of Joseph Arpaio, um, but he's also done it uh, by dangling pardons in front of potentially cooperating witnesses, by um, saying that Michael Cohen is a rat because he is making restitution and he is cooperating with authorities and Paul Manafort uh, is a hero because 
he is refusing to go state's evidence, and, uh, and, and now the president is saying that, well, Roger Stone has only been indicted for process crimes, uh, and isn't it terrible how he was arrested? Um, I mean, all of these actions and the, the dangling of pardons are an attack on the rule of law. Uh, I have a bill that I introduced last year I'll be reintroducing. We can't constitutionally change the pardon power by statute, but we can discourage its abuse. And one of the ways I think that we can do that is we can provide that if a president pardons anyone in an investigation in which the president or a member of his family is a witness, subject, or target, that the complete investigative files in that case will be presented to Congress. Um, so if the president thinks that he can make a problem go away by pardoning someone, this would say, no, all those files are going to be provided to Congress. So the country will find out what it is you're hiding, whether the pardon is being used to obstruct justice. Uh, that, to me, would have a powerful deterrent impact. That wouldn't prevent any abuse, but it, it, it would help reestablish a norm um, such that future presidents wouldn't consider that kind of abuse. This question derives from New York Times reporting saying that the FBI opened an investigation into the possibility that the president was a Russian asset. Do you believe the president of the United States is a Russian asset? Well, I, you know, I used to joke, I don't know whether I can still joke about this because sometimes these jokes are too close to home, that the, the best case against the idea that the president was a Russian asset is if he were, the Russians would be saying, hey, Donald, slow down, you're being too obvious. Um, You've you got to go slow. I mean, no one's going to believe that you're talking about withdrawing from NATO if you're not an asset of the Russians. You've you got to tamp right. it down. Uh, you're you're going to reveal yourself. You know, look, I, at the end of the day, what matters most is the president's actions. Whether he's compromised or not, um, he is acting like a person who is compromised. Uh, by denigrating our NATO allies, by denigrating the whole idea of NATO, by attacking our fellow democracies, by um, constantly fighting sanctions on Russia, by continually taking Putin's side over the, the views of his own intelligence agencies, by speaking Russian talking points on the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, or even more detrimental I remember a year or so ago he was being interviewed um, uh, on Fox, of course, and he was asked, you know, why can't you criticize Putin? You criticize everybody else. And the man's a killer. Uh, and Trump's response was, are we so different in the United States? Are we so different? You couldn't write that talking point better from the Kremlin point of view. The Kremlin narrative, the Kremlin storyline is, yes, we don't have much democracy left in Russia. We're a oligarchy, a thugocracy, but you know, so are you. Um, there is no Democrats versus autocrats, it's autocrats versus hypocrites. Hmm. You're just as corrupt as we are, you're just as anti-democratic than we are, you kill people the same way we do, you have no rule of law any more than we do. And when the President of the United States speaks that narrative, it is just so destructive. Uh, already people around the world watch this President and they wonder, did America make a terrible mistake 
or is America fundamentally a different country? The, the very idea of our country is being challenged. And so I think among the most destructive things that this president has done has been to attack the very idea that there is something called truth, right. uh, but also foster this narrative that the United States is no different than Russia. Every country is corrupt. But Russia's not the only country getting a pass. If you look at uh, the White House's treatment of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates as well, um, it's an exceedingly friendly, forgiving relationship. I'm curious if that's something that you believe might be tied to foreign, to financial entanglements, not just by the president, but perhaps by Jared Kushner or other members of his team. Um, yes, our, you know, our writ uh, on the Intelligence Committee is broad. We. Um, are chartered to look into any uh, counterintelligence threat to the country. I and should ask, will you? Sir? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and so our, our concern is not just that the Russians may be using their financial leverage or the president or entanglement with the president to direct uh, American policy in a pro-Russia direction, but that other powers may be doing the same thing. And uh, if the president is catering to Saudi Arabia because, as the president once said, the Saudis are spending tens of millions of dollars uh, on my Trump Towers and buying apartments from me. Why wouldn't I love the Saudis? Why wouldn't I love them? Okay, so they murder journalists, but please, they buy apartments from me. Um, so yes, if, if there's a financial motive for him or for Jared Kushner, if they're looking for financing for, you know, debt-saddled properties or properties with declining values, if they can't get American banks to lend to them, so they've got to go to Russian banks or they've got to go to the Gulf for money, then that's a problem. Anything that, that warps our foreign policy in ways that are antithetical to our interests because it would make first family money uh, is going to be uh, the subject of our oversight. If this is the worst case scenario, how does it compare to Watergate? Well, I, I think we're, we're already well past Watergate in terms of damage to the country. Um, there are a number of phenomenal similarities between what's happening today and, and in Watergate. Uh, Watergate was a break-in of the Democratic headquarters. Um, this began with a break-in of the Democratic headquarters, a cyber intrusion in the Democratic headquarters. But this was no you know, third-rate band of thieves. This was a foreign adversarial power. Uh, determined to influence the outcome of our election. And we also, you know, have our cabal of conspiracy theorists. Back then, uh, they were pushing the idea that the CIA was involved in the break-in, and today they're pushing the idea that there's a, a secret cabal at the FBI that's designed to bring down the president. Um, but uh, what I think makes this much more destructive than what took place before is the fact that we have a president who is running interference for that foreign power, who is denigrating our own intelligence agencies and FBI. Uh, and unlike Watergate, where you had enough Republican members of conscience to say, this is enough, um, there are virtually no members of the House GOP willing to say a word. Uh, and those in the Senate will only make the most opportunistic uh, disagreements with the president. But it does, it does, I think, have our republic trembling. And when this chapter of, of history is written, 
I think some of the most damning language will be reserved for the members of the GOP in Congress who at a time at a time when our institutions were under attack were utterly mute. So we are running out of time and I have a bunch more non-Russia questions to ask. I just want to finally wrap on this one on Russia. Um, when you wrap up your work, it is so important that whatever is presented be perceived as bipartisan, that there is some measure of comedy and unity so that it doesn't further divide our nation. Um, how, how can you do that? And on a technical, is it, is it just going to be, a, are you going to issue a report? Will you hold a final hearing? How will you make your decision known? Well, I mean, this is a very important question and one that we wrestle with. Uh, we are going to make every effort to make our investigation bipartisan, but we can only control what we do. Uh, if we have another party in our committee that is determined not to follow the facts wherever they lead as they represented they would, but to be the president's defense team, then uh, that really kills the chance of bipartisanship on the committee. But nonetheless, whatever they decide to do, we're going to be as transparent as we can about what we're doing and explain this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, uh, so that it will be credible with the public. The, the, the most cross-cutting challenge, though, of all, and this goes beyond Russia, but it's certainly implicated in whether what we do or what the special counsel do is received by the country, is the fact that we now get our information from such different places. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in college, I remember rushing back to my dormitory to see Walter Cronkite's last broadcast. Uh, that was a time when there was a large body of agreed upon fact, and we might differ what to do with those facts, but at least we agreed that they were facts. Now people tune into one channel if they want to have this view, and they tune into another if they want to have a different view. And even beyond that, most Americans now get their news from social media, which curate, curates it for us in a way that we only see what we want to see to the end of the tale. And how we break through that, um, I don't know. And particularly when you have you know, media uh, like Fox that is determined to champion a partisan point of view uh, or the president's point of view, it really, Fox had a decision to make when he became president. Were they going to be a conservative station or were they going to be the Trumpist station? And being a conservative station of Bill Kristol and Max Boot and George Will didn't pencil out. Being the station of Donald Trump did. So we now have our own version of state-run TV. It's basically oligarch-run TV. And how we, how we can overcome that, even if we make the very best efforts, is very hard to say. Another area where we're going to see the media play a major role in deciding uh, public opinion will be the 2020 elections. That was my graceless transition away from Russia. Uh, <laughs> I think the Democratic Party is facing a real reckoning right now between moderates who believe they need a centrist to win disenchanted Trump voters and the progressives who think they need somebody to really fire up the base and drive turnout. So what kind of Democrat do you think poses the most formidable threat to Trump in 2020? Well, I think the, the most formidable is the Democrat that can do both. Uh, and we really need to look for someone who can do both, someone who can both excite the base uh, and not uh, deter or drive away uh, moderates. Uh, and we've seen presidents who've been able to do that. Barack Obama was able to do it. Bill Clinton was able to do it. Um, and I do not think we should allow the GOP to force us to choose. Uh, we need to do both. Uh, now, I, you know, I have to say I'm seeing some encouraging signs among the electorate 
that they are ready to abandon uh, Mr. Trump. And not, not in wholesale numbers. I mean, no matter what happens, if he were indicted tomorrow, there'd certainly still be a core of people to support him. But I have been looking for someone to say what I read in the Washington Post now for two years. Um, and that is, they went out to Michigan and a county in Michigan that voted for Trump. This was a county in Michigan that was among the birthplace of the Reagan uh, Democrats. And they interviewed someone who had supported Donald Trump. And he said, look, I was looking for somebody who was going to change things, who was going to mix it up. Uh, I was willing to roll the dice. What the F was I thinking? <laughs> um, and I think Americans and people who supported Donald Trump, uh, an important part of that base is starting to ask that question. Uh, and, and I think um, the, 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 the key for our 2020 field is to be able to give them a good and credible alternative. Those people that voted for Donald Trump because they had worked their entire life, they had played by the rules, done everything they were supposed to do, they were on the eve of their retirement, they had nothing put away, the future looked even more bleak for their kids, and they were ready to roll the dice. Uh, those folks have a perfectly legitimate gripe with what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years, and to win them over, we're gonna to have to answer that question. You, you advocate for a moderate who can also appeal to progressives. Are you describing yourself? Um, if the question is, am I running, the answer is no. Okay. Um, but uh, look, I, I think... <laughs> what role would you like in a Democratic administration or a Democrat to win? What's your position? <laughs> uh, well, I've always wanted to be Ayatollah, but uh, <laughs> um, first Jewish Ayatollah. I mean, uh, I, it would definitely be breaking barriers. Uh, <laughs> Uh, honestly, I don't know. Um, it's hard for me to think much beyond the next year, let alone uh, two years. Um, but I, I do think the, the most important thing for our next president, in addition to undoing all the damage of the last period of time, is we are seeing around the world a rise of authoritarianism that is being propelled in significant part by massive forces of economic disruption uh, that began with globalization but that, that are now continuing uh, with automation on steroids. And it is dramatically changing our lives here and around the world. And it is wrenching to people. Uh, there are millions of people losing their jobs through no fault of their own. There are people working two and three jobs uh, uh, every day or week who can barely get by. And the uh, a continuation of the status quo is not going to be sufficient. Uh, certainly in this country, if we want to maintain the quality of life, um, small bore solutions to problems of the, that magnitude are not going to cut it. Uh, you know, I, I, I was uh, invited to speak at Penn last year, and I gave my speech. I got into an Uber to go to the airport, and the Uber driver says to me, this is my lucky day. Uh, now, it had nothing to do with my being in her car. Um, she said, I live near the airport, I just got off work, I'm making some extra money, I can make some extra money taking you to the airport. And I said, you know, it's really interesting, you should put it that way because you didn't really just got off work. You just got off one work, right. now you're starting another work. And I don't know what her day job is, but I know the night job isn't going to pay for health care, it's not going to pay a retirement, and if the day job doesn't either, then at a certain point, she's screwed. Uh, and 
that kind of workplace where it's not our father's Oldsmobile factory, people not only don't work for the same firm for 35 or 40 years, they, they work on average maybe five, six, or seven years for a company, and, and now in the future, maybe five, six, or seven hours, and then they move to work for another company in the latter part of the day. Who pays the pension in that kind of a world? Who, who provides healthcare? How do we make sure healthcare is really portable? These are the big questions that not only is the Democratic candidate for president going to have to answer, our party, both parties are going to have to answer this question because otherwise there's no way to, to make sure our kids have the quality of life that we become accustomed to. And these forces around the world that are propelling this rise of authoritarianism are going to accelerate. Uh, and that ought, to, that ought to concern all of us. Okay, we are out of time. I just want to let you leave on a hopeful note and ask you, at this point... Okay, then forget everything I just said. (laughs) (laughs) What can and should we be doing to protect ourselves and our country going, looking ahead to 2020 and beyond? You don't have to get into detail, but is it possible for us to get past this? Uh, Absolutely, and and I'm glad we're finishing on on this question. Uh, I always come back when I when I look around at what's happening today and despair or want to despair, I always come back to something Bill Clinton once said, there's nothing wrong in America that can't be cured by what's right in America. There's an awful lot right in this country. Um, And we will get through this. We will get through this. We've been through a lot worse. Uh, The divisions during Vietnam were every bit as deep and far more lethal than they are today. Um, We've been through cataclysms like the Great Depression, World War II, and nothing compares to the Civil War. So we've been through a lot worse than we're going through right now. Um, What we can do right now is every single one of us in our public capacity or our private capacity, our civic or corporate life, we can figure out what can I do right now uh, to burnish the values of this country as long as they are not reflected in the Oval Office. Uh, And that may mean... uh, speaking out. It may mean uh, philanthropic work. It may mean uh, helping to cultivate relationships with our foreign partners and allies. Uh, It may mean reassuring our southern neighbor that um, we don't believe that everyone coming from Mexico is a murderer or a thug or a rapist or a terrorist. Um, We all have a role to play uh, in both mitigating the harm that will occur as long as Mr. Trump is in the Oval Office Uh, And if we ever needed an abject lesson in how much character matters in the Oval Office, it is what we are experiencing today. Um, But in in every aspect of our lives, we can mitigate the damage now uh, and make sure that in the future, this is a chapter that never recurs. Uh, And I fully believe that America is up to the job. Thank you, Chairman Schiff, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.